by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks, focused on finance. In today's episode, my co-host Jun Yang in Hong Kong SAR will talk to Rebecca Tan in Singapore about the recent resurgence in COVID-19 in Southeast Asia and India, and what that means for regional economies and for banks' asset quality. Jun, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm always glad to be here. So Jun, what's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic in Southeast Asian countries in India, and what does it mean for banks? Well, the pandemic is going through a resurgence across the region, and cases have spiked uh, pretty dramatically in the past few months. Okay, and that's happening just as economies in the region were starting to recover, right? Yeah, exactly. And my understanding is vaccination rates across the region are still pretty low. Overall, yes, although um, it varies by country, and some countries have um, higher rates. Okay, so assuming loan performance is going to suffer somewhat, what's the impact on banks? Well, you're right. Uh, loan performance is, is going to weaken, although, again, uh, to what degree is going to vary uh, by country and by industry as well. But at the same time, uh, banks will be shielded by various forms of government support and also the strength of their loan provisions that uh, they built up in the past year or so. Thanks, Jun. We'll hear more about all that in a few minutes. But first, it's time for Fast Finance, where Moody's analysts tackle topics in the news. Joining us now is Bruce Ballantine, an analyst with the PNC insurance team in New York. Bruce, welcome to Focus on Finance. Thank you, Danielle. Glad to be here. Bruce, a merger that was supposed to happen between two of the largest insurance brokers, Aon and Willis Towers Watson, just terminated after a year or so of trying to get it done. What is the credit impact on the companies of the merger's termination and also some more recent events among the major brokers? Danielle, Aon and Willis Towers Watson are global diversified insurance brokers with solid investment grade credit profiles, and we expect that to continue. But they have had an interesting year. As you say, they agreed to merge and that agreement was struck in 2020 and together they would have become the world's largest insurance broker, surpassing in size uh, the current industry leader, Marsh and McLennan. But a few weeks ago, Aon and Willis Towers Watson terminated their merger agreement based on a challenge put up by the U.S. Department of Justice. We think the path forward for Aon is fairly clear, given that the Aon CEO and CFO were poised to lead the combined organization. We think they will carry on with their existing strategy and financial policy. The path is a little more challenging for Willis Towers Watson, whose current CEO was scheduled and is still scheduled to retire at the end of this year. Now, to address that, Willis Towers Watson just this week has named the successor CEO. He is a long established executive within the company. So we think 
he will start to clarify the ongoing strategy, he and team, as well as financial policy over the next few weeks. So we'll be watching for that. Bruce, thank you for that update. And for our next topic, Christian Badorf is here to talk about a recently announced U.S. Department of Justice investigation of funds managed by Allianz Global Investors, a subsidiary of global financial services company Allianz SE. Christian, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. So could you briefly explain what the Department of Justice investigation is about? So several investors into Allianz Global Investors' so-called structured alpha funds have filed suits against the company uh, in 2020. And uh, these investors are alleging losses of actually several billion dollars related to the performance uh, of these funds during the financial market downturn that happened in March 2020 when the coronavirus hit uh, for the first time. Um, this litigation then later on was followed by an investigation by the SAC, also in 2020, and now most recently the DOJ uh, has started to conduct its own investigation of the matter, and that of course makes this uh, very serious. And what does the pending investigation mean for Allianz's credit strength? I mean, firstly, there is of course significant reputational risk related to this. And in addition, the key questions from a financial perspective are what will be the outcome of the pending litigation, uh, but also the question of whether there will be any fines uh, imposed by the DOJ. Allianz itself has said that the matter could materially impact its future financial results, and that, of course, would be clearly negative uh, should that materialize going forward. However, from a rating perspective, uh, we don't believe this uh, will affect negatively Allianz's ratings. Uh, as the company uh, has very strong earnings capacity, also capital adequacy, and more generally, it benefits from a high degree of uh, business diversification, uh, which will help to offset the negative effect. On the other hand, what also is happening here that this particular issue obviously highlights some challenges associated with managing such, such a globally diverse business uh, as Allianz. Christian, thank you so much. And our last fast finance topic. California wildfires. Jasper Cooper of the North American PNC insurance team in New York is here to give us the latest updates on the wildfires and how they'll affect insurance companies. Jasper, thanks for coming. Sure, Danielle. Thanks for having me on. So Jasper, the Dixie fire as of this taping is still not contained and is the second largest wildfire by acres burnt in California history, as you wrote in your recent comment. It has caused tragic loss of many homes and businesses in the state. What is the latest estimate you have for damage? And what will it mean for homeowners insurers? Yeah, so, so far in 2021, there have been three major wildfires in California. Uh, the largest is the Dixie Fire. It started in July and has damaged and destroyed about 1,300 structures, and it's still only 35% contained. There's also the river fire that started this month. It's, it injured four people and has damaged and destroyed about 160 structures. And then most recently, the Caldor fire, which has injured two people and destroyed over 100 structures. It's 0% contained at this point, so the structure destroyed estimate may, is likely to increase for that one. Um, the California wildfires have historically averaged about $1.1 million per structure and in insured losses. That's all brought up to $2021. It sounds high, but you have to remember it includes contents and additional living expenses for homeowners. It also includes commercial property losses and some comprehensive auto losses as well. Um, but, but then there's a fairly wide range of around historical cost, cost per structure, depending on uh, the value of the homes and commercial buildings in the impacted areas. 
With almost 1,600 structures, damage are destroyed between the three major California wildfires at an average of $1.1 million per structure. The total insured losses would be around $1.8 billion. However, the impacted areas have significantly lower home values than the rest of California. We expect insured losses to be lower than that figure. So the Dixie Fire is the second largest fire in California history by acres burnt, but we expect it isn't even in the top 10 in terms of insured losses. Of course, the fires are still burning and insured loss estimates could go up significantly. Okay, and briefly, I know you've written about trends in homeowners insurance, uh, namely homeowners insurers raising rates or pulling out of insuring certain areas that are, are wildfire prone. Do you expect that to continue? And also, what can homeowners do if they can't buy insurance? Yeah, it's been a tough few years for homeowners insurers in California with major wildfires in four of the last five years, if you include 2021. Homeowners insurance have insurers have been raising rates by have been responding by raising rates, reunderwriting risks, requiring homeowners to reduce debris around their houses and, and purchasing additional reinsurers once when it's available. Uh, in some cases, they've been non-renewing policies, particularly in what's known as wildland urban interface or buoy regions, but only when the California Department of Insurance allows it. When homeowners and small business owners aren't able to get fire insurance coverage, they can turn to the California Fair Access to Insurance Requirements with a California fair plan. Market share numbers aren't available, but we expect that the fair plan has increased its market share over the last few years, albeit starting from a low market share to begin with. Also, the California fair plan dwelling coverage limits were doubled to $3 million last year. The way the California fair plan works is that California PN search insurers can still be hit by wildfire losses from properties insured by the California fair plan. That's because in cases when the fair plan's assets are insufficient to cover the wildfire losses, each California homeowners or, property or, or commercial property insurer is required to participate in fair plan losses in direct proportion to its market share. Okay, I see. So in other words, homeowners insurers could end up covering losses even from some areas they might not be underwriting new fire coverage business. Yes, that's right. Jasper, thank you so much. Coming up, my co-host Jun Yang will talk to the banking team analyst Rebecca Tan about the resurgence of COVID-19 in Southeast Asia and India and what it means for banks' asset quality. Jun, over to you. Thanks, Danielle. Uh, Rebecca, seems like the coronavirus situation in ASEAN countries and India has deteriorated quite dramatically um, in just a few months. And this is happening just as their economies were starting to recover. Could you walk us through um, how this resurgence of the coronavirus can set these countries back uh, economically? Sure, Jun, and indeed, many parts of ASEAN and India a couple of months back have been seeing elevated virus cases uh, while vaccination rates stay low. And because of that, we saw many of these countries going back into lockdown or implementing some form of containment measures in order to curb the outbreak. So business activities, particularly those that require face-to-face -face interactions, um, this got hit by the containment measures. To give you some numbers, we have um, the Philippines and Vietnam at the lowest with partly or fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Um, and so it, it will take time before these countries uh, is a, are able to ramp up vaccinations. And in that time, we do see a scenario where there could be multiple cycles of outbreaks leading to containment measures, and that will negatively hit the pace of economic recovery along with borrowers' cash flows. Right. But I guess the impact won't be the same for um, all countries, right? And they'll depend on a lot of different factors. 
which countries might be uh, more vulnerable um, in the region? And conversely, um, are there any countries that will perform relatively okay? You're right, June. Um, the impact will vary across the region, depending on the structure of the economies, vaccination rate, and so on. Um, and on the structure of the economies, we see Thailand, the Philippines, and Indonesia to be hit the hardest. Um, in the case of Thailand, the economy is heavily reliant on its tourism industry, and we see this industry to be one of the last to recover from the pandemic. Uh, for the Philippines and Indonesia, domestic demand is a key contributor to their economies, and that will be materially hit by um, pandemic-related containment measures. For India, we see the impact of the second wave to be limited to just one quarter, uh, because this time around, compared to what were put in place last year, um, the measures were more, more localized, they were shorter. But that being said, we, we do believe that you know, the financial buffers of SMEs have been hurt by these two rounds of very severe outbreaks, and that will put the quality of these loans at risk. Um, on the other hand, we see the resumption of global economic activities to boost trade growth in economies like Vietnam, Malaysia, and Singapore, and that will help offset some of these domestic economic disruptions from the pandemic. Um, although in the case of Vietnam, where vaccination rate is the lowest in ASEAN, uh, we, we do see risks to increase if the government is unable to control the current outbreak and significantly accelerate vaccinations. I see. Turning to banks, what does all that mean for, for banks? So how will this situation affect them, um, especially in terms of uh, risks to their uh, loan quality? Well, June, like how we see the impact of these new waves to vary across countries, it will also vary across the banks. Um, so for banks operating in economies that are, you know, struggling with elevated numbers of virus cases, you know, high uncertainties around the reopening of their economies. So we talked about Thailand, the Philippines and Indonesia, asset risks will increase. Most immediately, the quality of loans to borrowers in industries that have been directly hit by pandemic-related restrictions. So um, the likes of wholesale and retail trade, F&B, hospitality, all these loans will be at risk. And in particular, we see loans to SMEs or individuals working in them that were already under some form of support, say, for example, loan restructuring offered by the banks, um, these loans will increasingly be at risk of becoming non-performing um, because the debt repayment capacity of these borrowers, they were already uh, weakened because of the pandemic last year. And with these new waves of virus outbreaks, we could see the ability of the borrowers to repay their debt getting hit again. And if strict containment measures remain in place for a prolonged period, we do see a scenario where a wider spectrum of businesses can suffer um, that will result in more losses for banks. Um, also in that scenario, unemployment rates can rise sharply. Uh, this in turn would hurt the quality of retail loans more broadly. Uh, and, and that was what we saw in, in the Philippines last year where non-performing loans ratio close to double. I have one kind of overarching question about all of this. Rebecca, what does the deterioration in loan asset quality mean for banks? Does it mean we're going to see a broad deterioration, in other words, of banks' credit strength across Southeast Asian countries in India? 
interesting question, Danielle, and, and a really important one. Uh, we talked a lot about the risks faced by banks earlier, but we're expecting credit strength of ASEAN and Indian banks to remain intact. And that, that's because of a couple of reasons. Number one, we expect policy support for borrowers hit by the pandemic to remain forthcoming. Uh, number two, from, from our analysis, we found that the impact of the pandemic has so far been concentrated on a few segments of economies um, that will limit the deterioration of banks' overall asset quality. Uh, so in our analysis of uh, listed corporates in ASEAN and India, it, it showed that you know, while earnings declined materially in 2020 compared to 2019, corporate earnings on the whole remained in the black. Um, the impact of the pandemic on individuals has also been concentrated on the lowest income populations. Um, these populations, they don't account for much of banks' loans in ASEAN and India. Uh, oftentimes, they do not use banking services at all. Uh, unemployment rate, well, with the exception of the Philippines, has not risen sharply in this region. And when we looked at retail deposits at banks, that has also grown in many parts of this region. So all these indicators together suggest that banks' key retail customers as a whole have not been severely affected by the pandemic. Uh, but more fundamentally, I think over the last decade, there were various regulatory measures that were put in place to strengthen banks' balance sheet. Um, so for example, we, we have the caps on loan-to-value ratios for mortgages to curb property speculation. And so many banks here, they, they were facing the pandemic on a strong footing. And, and finally, perhaps to also link it back to point one, the support measures also helped by giving banks more time to cope with the impact of the pandemic. And we saw banks making use of that time to boost their loan loss reserves in order to cover future increases in non-performing loans. I see. So it, it sounds like banks really are uh, in a position to withstand quite a bit of stress. Rebecca, thank you so much. And thank you to Jun, Bruce, Christian, and Jasper as well for your insights. To read any of the reports referenced in this podcast, you can click the link for this episode at about.moody's.io forward slash podcasts. And please tune in again in two weeks on Wednesday, September 8th, for the next episode of Focus on Finance.